Quote, the 2022 midterms are coming up on November 8th, when voters across the U.S. will decide the makeup of Congress, determine who will hold key offices in their states and cities, and weigh in on policy directly via ballot measures. Democrats currently have narrow majorities in both chambers, and because the same party holds the White House, conditions are ideal for them to pass bills President Joe Biden will sign. But forecasts suggest Democrats are likely to lose control of the House and keep the Senate this fall, though, in many, key ra- though many key races are so close that anything is possible. Beyond Washington, governors, secretaries of state, and attorneys general, along with members of the legislature, are up for election in dozens of states. The winners of those contests will affect state policies on issues as varied as abortion, voting rights, and COVID-19. End quote. I, along with the vast majority of you listening out there, have grown tired of the American political show in recent years. Less and less voters have the ability to make an actual impact in elections. The Citizens United ruling basically pushed the average voter out of the sphere of political influence, and greater and greater centralization has eroded a vast majority of state power, instead granting ever more influence to the federal government. All of that being said, it is unfortunately an unavoidable aspect of modern debate. Even when topics deal primarily in foreign policy, like the policy topic this season, domestic politics still find their way into various rounds. With the midterms quickly approaching and so much on the line, as was enunciated in Vox News' article I read to start today's podcast, the presence of midterms disadvantages, or DAs, are inevitable as negative teams look to distance affirmative teams from the subject of their plans, which they obviously know more about. We will dive deep into the structure and definition of a politics and or midterms DA as this episode progresses. For now, an understanding that they are generic arguments based in domestic politics ought to suffice. However, in order to understand the specifics of the midterms DA's affirmative teams will face this year, debaters first need to maintain a strong understanding of the political conditions in the U.S. right now. As was explained in a New York Times article published earlier this month, quote, The Senate, which is now at a 50-50 deadlock but is controlled by Democrats because Vice President Kamala Harris cast the tie-breaking vote, has 100 members, with two of them from each of the 50 states. Not all 100 senators are up for re-election at once. This year, there are 34 seats up for grabs, and winners serve six-year terms. The House, with 435 voting members, is controlled by Democrats, 222 to 213. All 435 seats are up for elections, with winners serving two-year terms. While that provides some insight into the current arrangement of things, that article does little to inform readers as to what change is likely to occur in the coming months. The Brookings Institute fills this gap, acknowledging in an article published just over a month ago that, quote, two things distinguish the current midterms from those that preceded it. First, even as Joe Biden was beating Donald Trump by more than four percentage points in 2020, the Democrats lost 13 House seats, the worst performance by a first-time presidential winner's party since John F. Kennedy in 1960. House Republicans are beginning from a historically high base for the minority party and may already have achieved some of the gains that otherwise would have occurred this year. 
Second, the congressional redistricting following the 2020 census census has left a low number, perhaps the lowest ever, of swing seats, where the victors won by five points or less of the popular vote. After the 2000 census, there were 124 swing seats in 2002. After the 2010 census, 99. Today, barely 30 of those seats survive. End quote. Swing states are critical in the U.S. due to our implementation of the Electoral College. While we claim to be a democracy, the U.S. is in reality more of a republic, or representative democracy if you want to be very specific. In other words, U.S. citizens don't actually vote for the candidates. Instead, they vote for electors, which represent the state at the national level. The electors are, in theory, faithful to a party, and, as such, if citizens in one state vote Republican, they send a certain predetermined number of electors which represent the Republican Party to the National Convention. The real vote for president is cast by those electors, essentially placing a firewall between voters and the presidency. This system results in an interesting phenomenon, where certain states are bound to either vote Democratic or Republican by a significant margin. Those states without an obvious leaning are known as swing states and essentially decide the presidency every four years. In a government where power is supposed to change hands, these swing states become very important, and with fewer and fewer available for politicians to sway, our democracy becomes less and less representative. Despite that trend, this year's midterm cycle looks to be a very close race, as was discovered in a poll conducted by Pew Research earlier this year. Quote, with less than three weeks to go until midterm elections, registered voters' preferences are nearly evenly divided. 41% say they favor the Democratic candidates in their districts, while a nearly identical percentage, 40%, support Republican candidates. 18% are not sure how they will vote or favor candidates other than Republicans or Democrats. And those supporting GOP candidates are somewhat more engaged this election than their Democratic counterparts. They are more likely to have thought a lot about the election and say the outcome really matters. As has been the case all year, the economy is clearly the top issue for voters. Fully 79% say it will be very important to their voting decision, the highest share among 18 issues included on the survey. The public continues to take a dim view of current economic conditions. Just 17% of U.S. adults say the economy is in excellent or good shape. Little changed from the 13% who said this in July. End quote. Now that we have some understanding of the U.S.'s current domestic political orientation, we can move into some of the specifics which will define generic politics arguments in the months to come. So, stay tuned. Welcome to the latest Patreon episode of Stock Issues, The Midterm Mire, presented by the Missoula Debate League. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and this week's episode takes a deep dive into the midterms DAs that will be unavoidable this season. After covering the way in which those DAs are typically structured, this episode will take a look at some of the best ways to answer the midterm arguments specifically, as well as politics arguments more generally. Stock Issues is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found, so don't forget to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to our RSS feeds so that you never miss an episode. 
Things are always in motion over here at the Missoula Debate League, so check us out on social at Missoula Debate League, all lowercase, no spacing or punctuation, or visit our website at www.missoulaDebateLeague.com. Thank you for tuning in, and now, on to the episode. As is the case with any generic argument, politics DAs are disadvantages which instead hone in on some specific aspect of the resolution as opposed to the affirmative plan. If the argument is specific to the plan, it is known as on-case, while critiques, disadvantages, and counterplans are all forms of off-case arguments or generics. Generics might critique the way in which the resolution is written, or go after some specific element of the resolution itself. An arms race disadvantage, for example, might make the argument that any sort of substantial increase in security cooperation leads to an arm race. arms race. excuse me. It doesn't matter what specific increase the affirmative team decides to focus on, which is what makes the argument generic. Additionally, all generic arguments have a specific form in which they are normally presented, which helps to make the argument as strong as it can possibly be. Politics DAs, then, are a form of generic generic argument which deal with the first few words of the resolution, or the United States Federal Government, USFG. Since the USFG is always the primary actor in any policy debate resolution, it ought to come as no surprise that politics DAs are almost always available, warranting this lengthy discussion we are currently having. DAs generally are almost always presented using a very specific formula, as I mentioned above. This ought to come as no surprise to even the most novice policy debaters, given the importance of structure to policy debate as a whole. The parts all have strange formal names, but as long as debaters memorize the common verbiage translation, it is all fairly intuitive. Any well-formed DA will begin with a uniqueness, or acknowledgement of something good that is already happening. All policy debate resolutions propose some sort of substantial change to the status quo, which may seem fairly obvious. This fact is extremely important, however, since the negation is simply negating the resolution, which, once again, is some sort of substantial change. Therefore, the negation is supporting the status quo. As such, any argument made by the negation is stronger if presented alongside some evidence that states that the status quo is having a positive impact which would be negatively impacted by implementing the resolution. The uniqueness is this acknowledgement. The structure of a DA then turns to the link, which is sometimes separated into two distinct parts. As a whole, the link is the evidence which connects the resolution to the negative effect the negation argues the resolution will have on the status quo. For example, in the case of our arms race DA, the negation may argue first that there is currently not an arms race, which would be the uniqueness. They will then move into a link to the resolution. An example might be a card which notes that significant security cooperation with NATO has led to an arms race in the past. However, if a team is more savvy, they might go so far as to divide the link into separate parts, known as the external and internal links. 
The external link is essentially the tie to the resolution itself, while the internal link, or links, then provides another connection to an additional part of the argument, most likely the impact. So, in our example, the negation might provide evidence that past increases in security cooperation led to Russian aggression. That would be the external link. An internal link might then be that Russian aggression leads to U.S. arms buildup, which provides the final logical bridge to the arms race impact. External and internal links aren't always necessary, and mostly depend on the complexity of the argument being presented. The impact is the final and most obvious part of a disadvantage, while simultaneously representing the most important aspect as well. The impact is the statement of what will happen if the plan goes into effect, and is positive or negative depending on which side it is presented by. Obviously, in the case of a DA, the impact is something negative which will happen, and is correlated to the uniqueness that was presented to begin the argument. So, if a team wants to impact with an arms race, the uniqueness will always be a statement that there isn't currently an arms race happening. The impact is essentially the voting issue, or what the judge will eventually measure up against all other impacts made in the round to decide which side wins. As I said, impacts are rather intuitive, and I won't spend much time on them here. Now that we have a strong understanding of what exactly a DA is, DA disadvantage, what it is used for, and how it is structured, we can proceed into a discussion of the focus for today's episode, namely politics DAs. Since the midterms are quickly approaching, they will most certainly be the focus of any politics DA presented by the negative side this year. There is one more aspect of politics DAs worth mentioning here, insofar as they could be presented as an argument for either political party. Here in the US, the government is primarily controlled by Democrats and Republicans, meaning a DA could argue that a win for either side would have a negative effect. Since such arguments could be made in favor of either party, I wanted to present both options, along with some affirmative arguments that would be effective against both orientations. So, first of all, we will begin with the pro-democratic politics DA. The uniqueness then will be some sort of argument that the Democratic Party is currently in control and looking to perform well in the midterm election. As was noted by 538, quote, Democratic hopes of keeping the Senate are much more viable. Part of this, as I mentioned, is because they appear to have stronger candidates in a handful of key races. Pennsylvania, for instance, which is an open seat after the retirement of Republican Senator Pat Toomey, is ordinarily the sort of seat that you'd expect Republicans to win since Pennsylvania is a purple state in a Republican year. However, the Demo Democratic candidate, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, is ahead of Republican Mehem Oz, the doctor and TV personality, in every poll conducted so far. The model, though, is trained to be a bit skeptical given the fundamentals of the race, so it hedges against those polls and at this point has determined that Pennsylvania is at best thought of it as a toss-up. Still, that means the Democrats have roughly a 50-50 uh, chance of gaining a GOP-held Senate seat, offsetting potential losses elsewhere." End quote. While that card proves that Democrats are less likely to see losses in the midterms as compared to previous years, the link instead focuses in on the opinions of U.S. citizens regarding military spending, which will have an effect on outcomes in the upcoming midterms.
As was noted by Data for Progress, quote, the United States spends by far more than its military than other nations. U.S. military spending is more than the next nine countries combined. It is 12 times the amount Russia spends. Yet, demands persist from the military-industrial complex to spend ever more. For the upcoming year, the Biden administration has requested $31 billion increase in Pentagon spending to $813 billion. Congress is poised to add even more to that total, with some saying the United States should spend a trillion dollars on the military budget. The House and Senate Armed Services Committees are expected to vote in, in June on spending levels in the National Defense Authorization Act. Polling from Data for Progress and Public Citizen in May 2022 indicates that spending more on the military than requested by President Biden would be out of step with the public. The polling shows a strong majority of voters oppose an increase in military spending above Biden's request. 63% of those polled say the military's budgets should remain at the level Biden and the Department of Defense requested. Military spending concerns a majority of Americans, with 55% of voters reporting that they are somewhat concerned or very concerned about current proposals for $813 billion in defense spending next year. Democrats overwhelmingly say Pentagon spending should not exceed current levels when thinking about proposals to increase funding. End quote. From this point, the negation would certainly would essentially make the argument that voters are likely to disagree with the resolution. Given the uniqueness, it would appear as though voters are content with the current state of contributions, and, as such, if spending were to increase, voters would disapprove. Since the Biden administration is currently in control of the federal government, this would reflect negative on Biden and the Democrats as a whole, in turn resulting in a loss for Democrats in the upcoming midterms. The impact card, then, in this case, is an argument as to why it's critical that Democrats remain in control of the federal government. As was noted by the Brookings Institute in an article published earlier this year, quote, the stakes for the 2022 midterm elections just got a lot higher. American democracy and majority rule, a cornerstone principle of our democracy, are on the ballot. The recent decisions to overturn Roe v. Wade and to allow gun voters to carry a weapon in public reveal a Supreme Court far out of touch with the views of an overwhelming majority of Americans. The attempted coup by former President Trump, exposed by Republican witnesses at the explosive hearings of the January 6th Special Committee, represents the greatest threat to American democracy since before the Civil War. And the continued success of pro-Trump pro election deniers in Republican primaries this year, coupled with the retentance of far too many Republicans to announce Trump's brazen and illegal efforts to overturn 2020 election, demonstrate that the threat is ongoing. Our democracy is on a knife edge, knife's edge, warned conservative judge J. Michael Liddig in testimony before the January 6th committee. End quote. That is the basic structure for a midterms DA which favors the Democratic Party, though the cards and structure might change depending on the specific team that is encountered in each round. However, as I stated before, midterms DAs can be in favor of either side, which necessitates us looking at the other side of the argument here as well. The Republican argument, on the other hand, is essentially just a mirror image of the disadvantage we just discussed. As such, it will begin with an acknowledgement regarding the strengths or ideals of the Republican Party as it currently exists. This case was made in an article published by Politico, who acknowledged the fact that, quote, 
Angry voters slammed by higher prices and scarred by two years of fighting the pandemic are poised to punish Democrats in midterm elections, according to some of the leading experts in consumer sentiment and behavior. And with inflation persisting and Russia's war on Ukraine stoking uncertainty, there are indications that public sentiment is getting worse, not better, posing a growing threat to Democrats' already slim chances of holding on to Congress. The widely watched University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Survey, Survey recently touched its lowest level in almost 11 years. A survey by the Associated Press for Public Affairs Research showed that 70% of Americans think the economy is in poor shape, and 81% of those in a poll released by CNBC see a recession coming this year. Gallup found the share of Americans citing inflation as the top issue right now at its highest level since the 1980s. End quote. All of these indicators point to a strong Republican showing in the upcoming midterm election, a point that any decent negative team would bring up in round. However, Americans are overwhelmingly in support of Biden's leadership in the coalition against Putin's invasion of Ukraine. As was reported by Verve late last month, quote, while Biden's domestic policy agenda appears to be mired in intra-party squabbles, it is a very different story 6,000 miles away in the Ukraine. On Ukraine, Biden and his foreign policy team are, reading the le- are leading the rest of the world, revitalizing the NATO alliance and stepping up to the challenge that Putin poses to the rules-based international order, one that has maintained relative peace in Europe for nearly 80 years. Biden and the United States have been at the forefront of this coalition, which includes G7 members, NATO allies, rich countries like Japan, and developing countries like Ghana, and even traditionally neutral countries like Switzerland and Monaco. Even more importantly, early polls show that the average Americans of all parties are coalescing around their support for Ukraine and opposition to Russia's invasion. For Republican voters to back Biden's position on anything is exceedingly exceedingly rare, and all the more so because the most recent Republican president, Donald Trump, was such an ardent supporter and defender of Putin, end quote. This may seem like a good thing to most, and yet, in the context of this pro-Republican disadvantage, it actually plays into the hands of the negation. If Biden secures a substantial increase in security cooperation in opposition to Putin, it would obviously have positive effects on Democratic performance in the midterm election. This, in turn, is bad for Republicans, which is the focus of the disadvantage. The impact card then makes the argument more in terms of the economy, with Forbes noting that, quote, stocks are off to a rocky start so far this year thanks to a laundry list of challenges, including inflation spikes and interest rate hikes. Midterm elections in November are going to make 2022 even trickier by adding yet another layer of uncertainty to the investing mix. Come November, Republicans are hoping to win back control of either the House of Representatives or the Senate. They'll need five seats to win a majority in the House and one seat in the Senate. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, and Florida all have key elections that could determine whether or not Congress flips. The most favorable outcome for markets would be a Republican win in both the House and the Senate, says Jeremy Siegel, the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. If Republicans take the House and not the Senate, that would also be a relatively favorable outcome, end quote. 
In this case, the disadvantage is essentially making the argument first and foremost that Republicans are in a position to pick up seats in the midterm election. However, due to the level of support for opposition to Putin and Russia through NATO, if the plan were implemented, it would actually strengthen the Democratic cause. This would be bad for Republicans, and therefore the economy, as it would draw voters' attention away from COVID-19 and the inflation which has plagued the U.S. for the past year or so. After the break, I want to examine some of the arguments against both forms of this DA, creating opportunities for the affirmative to move the discussion away from politics in general. This episode of Stock Issues is presented by the Missoula Debate League. Founded by Eli Brown, the Missoula Debate League seeks to empower students from across Montana, eastern Washington, and northern Idaho in their journey to become better debaters, students, and most importantly, people. We just launched our first round of debate briefs, which are currently available for free on our website, second round actually. We highly recommend taking a look at those briefs as they are full of resources meant to better prepare debaters for competition. We're even offering private coaching for the upcoming season meant to supplement the coaching already provided through the school. Learn more about our experience, sliding fee scale, or sign up today for a free virtual consultation at www.missoulatabateleague.com. Now, back to the show. There are a number of ways to refute a politics DA generally, all of which apply to the midterms DAs we have examined over the course of this episode. As with any other refutation which would occur in a given debate round, the predetermined structure of a DA allows debaters to separate attacks based upon which element of the original argument they are contending. Since the argument depends on all the individual elements, if a team is able to subvert a single piece, they are much more likely to win on the argument as a whole. As such, affirmative teams might refute the uniqueness, link, or impact individually. If they are effective in doing so, the whole argument will flow back to the affirmative side even if they haven't addressed the other aspects of the DA. Additionally, as you can see above, there is, an, there is a case to be made for both political parties. There is obviously evidence to support both sides at any point in the argument, whether it be Republicans or Democrats doing well now how the resolution will affect outcomes, and what that outcome will result in if the implementation occurs. To be clear, the first DA made the argument that Democrats were on track to pick up seats in the midterm election. The second DA makes the argument that Republicans are in the exact same position, which obviously would be literally impossible from an objective standpoint. Therefore, there is always some evidence debate to be had in the context of any politics DA which will essentially be won by either the debater who has more evidence or whomever is lucky enough to have the final speech in the round. A couple of words of warning against debating in this way, however. First, the evidence debate, as I just said, will essentially just come down to resources, as opposed to the actual skill of the debater. Additionally, this type of debate may be polarizing to the judge, depending on their personal political orientation, as well as their ability to remove their own bias from their analysis of the round. 
As such, I would probably advise against refuting politics DAs in this manner. Instead, I would recommend going after the link, or the part of the argument that connects the midterms to the resolution itself. Since any given politics DA will always be a generic argument, it is likely that the link is the weakest point in the argument. Additionally, since the resolution deals with foreign policy and politics DAs are inherently domestic issues, there ought to be plenty of evidence available to help debaters untangle the two. For example, both, both of the DAs outlined above essentially make the argument that further interventions will have some effect on the way voters cast their ballots in the midterms. If an affirmative team can prove that a substantial increase in security cooperation would have little effect on voter preferences, they essentially make the DA obsolete, as it no longer has any real connection to the resolution or the case itself. Luckily, there's plenty of this sort of evidence available, and it works for either of the out arguments I outlined before. One example of this type of evidence comes from an article published by PR Newswire earlier this year. The authors note that, quote, respondents were asked what one issue matters most in deciding how they will vote in the United States midterm elections in 2022. While a variety of reasons were mentioned, the two issues that mattered most on deciding how to vote among respondents were the economy at 27% and coronavirus at 17%. Following behind that were health care at 13%, national security 11%, climate change 10%, immigration 7%, racial, racial gender equality 6%, Supreme Court 4%, education 3%, and foreign policy 3%, end quote. With voters focusing in on a single issue more and more over time, they are much more likely to base their decisions off of whatever part of governance they care most deeply about. As the authors acknowledge there, the average U.S. citizen cares very little about foreign policy. In fact, it is the least important issue to ma a majority of potential voters. An article published by the Cook Political Report further explains this phenomenon. Quote, Given how monolithic partisans are in their approval ratings and actual voting, it is always useful to look only at independents, the jump all Americans. Biden's overall rating among them was 37%. His best marks were on dealing with coronavirus, followed by foreign policy, Russia, the economy. It is pretty clear that the president and his administration's denial of the threat of inflation and slow reaction to it was exceedingly damaging to him. While we don't know the trajectory that Russia-Ukraine crisis will take, and there are many factors that can impact midterm elections, we do know that in the absence of a large number of U.S. military deaths, Americans rarely vote on foreign policy issues, particularly in the midterms. The state direction of the economy, particular change, particularly change in real disposable personal income, is far more determinative." End quote. While there is obviously plenty of evidence available which one could use to make this argument effectively, debaters also have a weighing argument available to them in lieu of concrete numbers. For example, in future rounds where the election is further away, polling data might not be as available in terms of issues voters care deeply about. In that situation, it might be more useful to implement a piece of logic which weighs the importance of the two law or uh, implement a piece of evidence which lays, weighs the importance of the two logically without relying on polling data, such as in a report published by CNN much earlier this year. Quote, While the American public has shown wide-ranging approvals for supporting Ukraine, 
Their primary focus remains on the pocketbook issues they are feeling at home. And while Biden enjoyed a small rise in his approval ratings in the immediate aftermath of Russia's invasion, the bump vanished after a few weeks as Americans returned their attention to issues at home. A Quinnipiac University poll released last week shows that 30% of Americans said inflation was the most urgent issue facing the country. Less than half that number named the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Other polls have shown rising prices and, inflationly er, and inflation are overwhelmingly at the top of Americans' minds and not the conflict in Ukraine, end quote. As a championship-level debater, it is also critical that teams think through the potential course a round's worth of argumentation will take. This allows competitors to get out in front and remain a step ahead of their opponents, thereby granting them the ability to control the round for its entire duration. In thinking through midterms DAs then, and politics DAs more generally, it is clear that the evidence debate is likely to come into play from one team or the other. Since both midterms DAs base their uniqueness in polling numbers and the refutation I just discussed also falls along those lines, the evidence debate is likely to occur there. As such, it would also be useful for affirmative teams to have evidence on file that calls into question the accuracy of polling data generally, as this puts the whole argument on a very fragile foundation. PBS published an article which could serve as this type of evidence just a couple of months ago, enunciating the fact that, quote, the Republican Party rarely pulls ahead of Democrats on the generic ballot, according to political scientist Laura Brown. For Democrats to come back and win elections, they need to make significant gains in public support. But she added, it's too early and political churn is too volatile to know which party will emerge victorious from the midterms. Twelve hours is an eternity in politics, Brown said, end quote. Luckily for debaters, that evidence isn't the only card available, as it is pretty much common knowledge that any sort of model has a particular bias. The news agency 538 does an excellent job of recognizing the bias inherent in any sort of forecast and is therefore always a great place to turn when looking for evidence on this front. Nate Silver, editor-in-chief, noted in a report published earlier this year that, quote, but good luck guessing the direction of the bias in early 2022 polls. True, in the last four cycles, early Senate polls have been about three to six points too good for Democrats. But in three or four cycles before that, early Senate polls had overestimated Republicans, and early gubernatorial polls overestimated Republicans in 2018, too. Moreover, as the 2018 cycle showed, one set of polls could be skewed toward one party, while surveys for another office could end up biased towards the other party. Though the 2022 electoral environment is shaping up to be advantageous for the GOP, just how accurately the polls gauge races, polls gauge races remains to be seen. End quote. With the midterms quickly approaching, hopefully this line of argumentation will end this season sooner rather than later. However, as I stated at the beginning of what has become a lengthy podcast, politics DAs aren't going anywhere. As such, I hope this episode was generic enough to also inform debate in the seasons to come. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, this has been Stock Issues. Thank you again for tuning in to the latest edition of Stock Issues, The Midterm Mire, presented by the Missoula Debate League. 
we recently released the second round of MDL debate briefs available for free on our website. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and you can now listen to Stock Issues wherever podcasts are found, so please don't forget to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks for being a part of our community, and be sure to tune in next time for another edition of Stock Issues. Thank you.